When we first started talking about loneliness as a topic, we thought this has got to be impacting people. I mean, COVID isolated Americans. But it turns out, according to a recent advisory from the U.S. Surgeon General, even before the pandemic, about half of U.S. adults reported some level of loneliness. Now, maybe you're thinking, just get out there and do something about it. Go hang out with your friends. Go to social events. Get more active. Well, it turns out, and we'll get into this, it's really not that easy. The epidemic of loneliness and isolation is now considered a major public health concern. And believe it or not, there are physical consequences that result from poor social connection. A 29% increased risk of heart disease, a 32% increased risk of stroke, and a 50% increased risk of developing dementia for older adults. Across all age groups, people are spending less time with others in person than they were 20 years ago. And this is most pronounced in younger people, age 15 to 24, who had a 70% less social interaction with their friends. 70%. Hi, everyone. I'm Pete Kenworthy. And I'm Macy Jepson, and this is The Science of Health. Joining us today is psychiatrist Dr. Andrew Hunt from University Hospitals in Cleveland. Thank you for being with us. Thank you. We're going to cover a lot today, but we want to start with understanding the problem. Scientifically speaking, what is loneliness? So we, we define loneliness as the uh, subjective sense of distress that occurs when you lack an adequate social connection. So it's not the same as social isolation, which is just having an inadequate number or inadequate like intensity of interaction. It's the subjective distress that follows with that. Um, and it's also different than solitude, which is where you might feel comfortable being alone and feel like that's okay with you, and it's part of your balance in the way you, you feel good. The fact of the matter is people are spending less time with others than they were 20 years ago, though. Why is that? Well, I think there's a lot of reasons, and it's different by age, I would say. Uh, so, for instance, for, for children... Um, the question is, you know, what are they doing with their time all day? You know, how do they spend it at school? Do they spend it interacting or do they spend it with their, you know, a face in a phone or a tablet? Um, are they interacting more with computers than with people? Uh, with young adults, we see the social media is really, really prominent. Um, computers and Internet use increases, actually, in young adulthood. Um, and then by middle age, we're sort of worried about social isolation occurring due to social constructs, such as your work-life balance or your, your experience of parenthood can be isolating sometimes. Um, if you don't achieve the kind of economic outcomes you're looking for and, and there's instability, that can facilitate a sense of social isolation that goes along with socioeconomic factors. Um, and then for, for people who are elderly, you know, it's this idea of maybe you lose your spouse at some point or maybe uh, your disabilities start to crop up and then you feel like you can't get out, you can't be with the people. Maybe you have uh, problems with vision and hearing that make you feel increasingly isolated. Uh, and so at each stage, I think we're looking at different causes, different problems. Everything you just talked about, though, I would think existed 20 years ago. And yet the data shows loneliness is more prevalent now, right? So is there, is there something that has changed in, in those things that you mentioned or, or otherwise? Well, with respect to technology, things have changed dramatically. Um, so, so, for instance, we think that technological interactions have replaced what would have been human interactions in many cases. And you're seeing like a decrease in 
uh, all forms of social connection uh, in terms of number of hours spent doing it. So we used to spend you know X number of hours talking with people, being face to face with friends, family, uh, you know, at work, etc. Now we do less of that. Um, also, people's experience of social isolation definitely has gone up, and this has been measured. So, so people are generally having fewer one-on-one -on -one interactions with other humans. There are other factors that are also you know, interesting to look at, such as our political landscape, which is increasingly divided. Um, and, and so people are experiencing, even within their families, differences politically that make them interact less easily uh, and less, you know, warmly. Um, and, you know, we could argue like that technology and social media have influenced that trend as well. Um, but I would say at this point in our political history, we're at a highly polarized political climate. Uh, and this has created rifts socially throughout. So the Surgeon General, Dr. Vivek Murthy, recently wrote in the New York Times that nearly everyone experiences loneliness at some point, but its invisibility is part of what makes it so insidious, the invisibility of it. That's pretty powerful, right? I mean, he went on to write that there are grave consequences for our mental health, our physical health, and collective well-being. Before we talk about how to fix it or how to try to fix it, let's talk about some of those consequences for people who are mired in that isolation or loneliness. The first one I think of is depression. Sure. So, so depression and loneliness are highly correlated. In fact, it's one of the criteria is, is social withdrawal. Um, that said, it, it, we think it's probably a bidirectional relationship um, where people who are more depressed feel lonelier and then people who are lonelier f are more likely to be depressed as well. Uh, individuals who, who have mental health disorders um, might be more and more likely to experience loneliness and experience the negative health consequences related to that. So say depression causes social withdrawal for you and, and you find yourself alone, you might also feel like you're less likely to reach out for help, you're less likely to reach out for support. Um, maybe there's a feeling of negative self-worth that goes along with depression that influences the way that you interact with people. Um, I think psychologically speaking, the experience of loneliness is fraught with stigma and shame. I shouldn't feel this way. Uh, I, if everything's going well for me, why would I you know, feel this way? Um, so that lack of the ability to accept the feeling that goes along with it um, and, and the increasing distress associated with that, uh, I think can be a, a, a downward spiral that could lead to consequences such as suicidal thoughts, things like that. You mentioned the, the psychological impact, uh, but there's also biological and behavioral things that are involved as well, right? Sure. So, so loneliness specifically has been correlated with biological changes uh, pertaining to what we call the HPA axis or uh, hypothalamic pituitary axis. This is the way that the body and the mind or the brain manage stress. Um, uh, for instance, cortisol is kind of a big uh, you know, name in this. Uh, loneliness increases cortisol and, uh, and, and, and it also uh, affects the way the body manages inflammation. And uh, thus, we think that that mediates a lot of the biological outcomes related to loneliness. And so that explains why there's an increased correlation to heart attack and stroke because of these biological changes? Yeah. Before we continue, Pete, I want to go back to what you said about Dr. Murthy, because it's so disturbing to me when you say the invisibility of it all. Because my 
that when I when I hear that, I think of someone who may seem so happy and maybe even outgoing, and then at home, when truth be told, they're really very lonely. Do you see that a lot? Sure. Yeah. There, there are lots of people who find they can interact superficially and um, they do what they're supposed to do with their role. But inside they are suffering and, and they don't know who they can bring that to. They don't know how to manage it necessarily. Uh, I think that when people uh, experience a sense of shame associated with a negative feeling, it makes them want to hide from it or it makes them want to hide it from others. And uh, I think they think that if they bring it out, it'll bust this bur- bubble uh, that that makes them say, "Well, yeah, I'm, you know, I'm making it. I'm doing it. I'm fulfilling all my roles. You know, um, everything's just fine." Is there data that shows that loneliness or isolation leads to drug or alcohol abuse? I would I would think it would. Sure. Yeah, it, it's been correlated with both the onset of of drug and alcohol use disorders. Um, and also the worsening of them, uh, the worsening of the consequences related to them. So, so and I think, again, it's bi-directional. Um, you might find people who feel lonelier uh, are more likely to stumble upon drugs and alcohol as a way of managing strong negative feelings. Uh, I think also once people get involved with drugs, the drugs become their best friend. The alcohol becomes like their best friend. Um, and that makes them more isolated from others uh, and and leaves them in a in a downward spiral sometimes. Speaking of best friend or a connection with something, let's get back to the technology thing. It seems like an easy thing to blame, but people of all ages spend too much time on their phones. I know I do as well. Is that a legitimate source of what we're talking about here? So, so my feeling about technology use in general is that some people use it to the effect of decreasing loneliness, probably. So if you really use your social media to connect with friends and to plan outings and then get together with people and then you succeed in what you're trying to accomplish with that technology, great. You know, that's a social glue. But if you find yourself trapped in it and you're using it constantly instead of interacting with others, instead of furthering your, your own kind of interests, um, I think then it becomes something that wastes time at best or at worst may be causing negative effects. So, for instance, like some people have bullying experiences online and um, or via social media. And this, we think, is is dramatically impactful in terms of social isolation. You know, a person who gets shamed on the Internet uh, it, it could be as bad as being shamed in the public square. But doctor, what about introverts? People who truly enjoy m- maybe being isolated. Is there a line between isolation and being lonely? Well, here, here's where we get into the idea of solitude, where, where some people really enjoy their solitude. And that's great. You know, they might you know, really find that to be a, a, a nice time where they can put their thoughts together, they can be creative, they can uh, let themselves relax and recharge, you know, and that's great. If that's sort of the balance you've struck with the sense of, of solitude, I wouldn't call it isolation in that case. Isolation is more of a problematic term. Um, but if you're if you're spending too much time by yourself, then you can, and you don't, you know, re, sort of rejuvenate the connections you have you know, then you can wonder, is that counterproductive? So, so there are some people probably who, who spend too much time alone in spite of the, not feeling a lot of pressure to interact. Um, 
And, you know, but those folks, I think, are at higher risk for other bad outcomes because maybe they um, maybe they need somebody to just check in on them and make sure that they're OK. Um, you know, one of the big impacts of living alone, for instance, is that you have nobody to call 911 if you suddenly have an, an emergency. You know, and so we know that's part of like the risk of mortality increase that goes along with social isolation. Let's let's talk about some of the good things that come from being more socially connected, um, because you've you've referenced the value of that. And I'll pause in between each one to give you time to comment. Th- these are facts from the Surgeon General's advisory: being more socially connected can improve stress responses and minimize the negative health effects of stress. Sure. Yeah. So, so this is a uh, kind of well-established phenomenon um, that you know we've measured stress hormones in response to a sense of social belonging and connectedness, and and you see that that correlates. Um, you know, biologically speaking. Now, in terms of practicality and behavior, you know, when you have people to help you uh, deal with daily stressors, you know, and, and you sort of share the stress amongst many people, it tends to lighten the burden for all. And, uh, you know, you don't feel like it's an emergency when things go wrong. Um, you feel like there are resources I can get to and connect to uh, to take care of this problem. Um, or it's going to get taken care of over time by the group, by the whole, um, as opposed to me just being stuck with it and all the negative consequences related. People with strong perceptions of community are more than two and a half times more likely to report good or excellent health than people with low sense of belongingness. So belongingness is a very interesting uh, topic. Uh, it's been more well studied recently um, as a potential intervention for depression and other types of mental health disorders. Um, it's one of the mechanisms of AA. You know, you create the sense of belonging and then people can, can resist going back to alcohol or drugs. Um, so we think that when you generate social belonging, you induce a lot of positive things in the brain, a lot of positive things in the body. Um, but then you also, you know, create these real social connections that help you uh, deal with problems. Um, so, so like, for instance, like in residency training, um, uh, one of the things we work on is how do we create belonging between our residents, trainees. They're all coming from different places. They come from different backgrounds. They're leaving the social structure they came from. Uh, and we need to bring them together and, and build a sense of belonging quickly so that they can deal with all the stress that comes with being a resident and working hard every day. Last one here is. Children and adolescents who enjoy positive relationships with their peers, parents, and teachers have improved academic outcomes. Yeah, so, so the, the social experience of school is something that I feel like we are increasingly focusing on. Um, I think that you know, when a child doesn't perform academically, that can lead to a spiral of sort of disconnections that go on between peers and between parents and between teachers. Um, and so, so we need to like have the schools able to meet those needs uh, socially. Um, I think that when students can create these connections and can succeed in, in their social milieu, they tend to like have great academic outcomes, generally speaking. But here, here's the thing about this issue. It's a societal one. It's an epidemic, though, that is extremely individualized. So I'm wondering how we can help. How, what can we do to help ourselves? What can we do to help our loved ones? And, I mean, this is such an issue that we're talking about it. How can we help our community? Right. So, so this is the big question going forward is, is what changes can we make, you know? 
in mental health care, I help individuals make changes to the way they view themselves and the way that they reach out or don't reach out for for help uh, when they need it. Uh, I also uh, work on what are obstacles to sense of self-worth and self-esteem and what what prevents you from being able to connect with the loved ones you have. Um, it, for people who are socially isolated and truly alone, we have people that reach them and uh, and try to uh, you know interact in a way that that shores up that need a bit. Um, but we need more of that, honestly. Like I think our system needs to grow with respect to home care, with respect to um, social work, with respect to programs uh, that meet people where they are and and create connections where they're more difficult. I think that there's multi -la multiple layers to, to what needs to happen. Um, and the Surgeon General's report is actually a wonderful document that, that outlines for every stakeholder in the community, uh, what you could be doing, you know. So, what could you be doing at government? What could you be doing in a workplace? What could you be doing uh, in a healthcare setting? Um, what can individuals and families do? And for each of those, there are lots of things. I think uh, what's relevant maybe to the listeners might be, you know, what can I do for the people closest to me? And I would say, you know, there there are clearly, uh, when you think about a relationship, you can ask yourself, well, how frequently am I interacting? You know, do I reach out often enough? Um, when we reach out, do we talk about real things or do we just kind of like skirt the issue? You know, can we deepen our interactions and make them more meaningful? With respect to balancing your life, you know, do, you can look at work-life balance and you can make subtle changes to that uh, by, by reflecting upon that. I think that with children, uh, you know, parents need to like develop this relationship where they can interact meaningfully and 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 kind of get a sense of how each other are doing uh, and model that connectiveness. They can also tell children that, you know, when you're on the phone, I don't feel that connected to you. Can we spend some time with the phones put away? You know, and you can generate family time that excludes obstacles to meaningful interactions. And young adults are really going through a lot. You know, another thing about young adults, um, I think young adulthood is a time when you're losing some of the social structures that are important or have been important, such as high school, you know, um, such as the nuclear family sometimes. And, and you're expected to go out and sort of make your way in this new fashion that's completely something you have not necessarily prepared for. Um, high school is meant to train you to do certain things, but then, you know, the ability to go out and like get your first house or, you know, or find your first, you know, long-term partner uh, or, or succeed in college, succeed in training of some sort. Not necessarily a foregone conclusion. Um, lots of people struggle at different stages of the period after high school. And, uh, and this leaves them feeling like the strongest uh, period of inadequacy and identity crisis that they may feel in their lifetime. Um, so, so they were doing fine in high school. Maybe they leave and they, they go out. They find it's more difficult than they thought. They find that the course that they initially were on is not working for them. And so they find themselves stuck. And maybe at that point, they're afraid to go back and start again. Or they're afraid to pick up and change courses. Um, maybe they've invested a large amount of time and money and effort into something and they're afraid to sort of say, well, I need to let that go and do something different. Um, at that point is when belonging tends to plunge, loneliness tends to increase. And, uh, and that's a time when people are at risk for suicide uh, often. 
And so in that moment, I would love for people to, to instead understand that that's normal for young adulthood, that you're going to change your mind. You're going to not do what you expected to do. You're going to face challenges you didn't expect to have. Um, you might have the onset of mental illness or the onset of a substance use disorder. This is the most common period when those things occur. And families and, and uh, young adults do not plan for this, do not expect it to happen. But it's the point when actually it happens the most frequently. Um, so at that point, that's when we need our system to, to react and, and try to prevent long-term negative outcomes of mental health, uh, dis mental disorders. And uh, I think that, that if we are able to meet uh, the, the need for young adults uh, with a very robust approach, uh, that uh, that's a time when we can, we can see long-term outcomes improve for the next generation. At what point does a loved one, and I say this because sometimes you don't see it in yourself, does a loved one look at someone and say, okay, it's time to take it to the next level, maybe get some help? And I mean, I'll ask that about an individual as well. What, what, what's going through their mind that is an indicator that they can't do this on their own? So, so I'm, I would say I'm like extensively liberal with respect to seeking mental health care. Um, I, I feel that mental health treatment is a gift. Um, we should talk to our doctors about it. We should, we, you know, if you feel like you're in distress, there's nothing that, that needs to stop you from getting a therapist and, and having a relationship with somebody you trust. And that could be somebody who you, you know, know as a trusted friend. It could be somebody you like, uh, uh, a religious leader that you reach out to and, and interact with uh, for support. Um, it could be a counselor or a therapist. Uh, I feel that uh, creating those meaningful relationships are invaluable uh, to the development of people at different stages in their lives. Um, I wouldn't be where I'm at without having had tremendous support and counseling. And I myself sought therapy my, for myself uh, for 10 years. Uh, in my process of becoming a psychiatrist, you know, so so to me that was invaluable, and I would not be who I am without that experience. Uh, I, so I think we should have a low threshold for seeking care. Um, we should not wait for it to become a crisis. We shouldn't wait for it to be the last resort. You know, why not make it the first resort? <laughs> you know, you're feeling bad, you're feeling distressed in any way. You know, talk to somebody about it. Get an assessment. I mean, it it, it really correlates well to if you start not feeling well physically, you call the doctor, right? right. So if yeah. you start not feeling well mentally, call the doctor. Right. Yeah. And, and I mean, uh, the majority of people with mental health problems actually find that their primary care doctor is is the adequate source of response, you know? Um, so primary care doctors can respond to these things and, and do. I think it would be an oversight at this point if we didn't talk about the suicide and crisis hotline just because people, you know, tend to push it back and, 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 and not take the steps that they need until it, it's almost too late. So uh, would you like to remind folks about that? Um, sure. Uh, so, so 988 is, is a new um, three-digit code, kind of like 911, uh, and you can call this and talk to somebody to get support around any kind of a mental health crisis, including suicidality, including other needs for mental health concerns. Um, so it's kind of a one-stop shop, and it's, re it's replacing all of the numbers that used to exist for every city in the world. You'd have to know what number to call. But 988 is easier to remember and, and more, I think, accessible to wherever you are. 
Well, I kind of hate to end this conversation on such a heavy note with with the suicide and, and crisis hotline, but it really does underscore how serious this issue can be. I, I think the fact that we're paying attention to it now uh, it means that it's risen to the point where everybody's noticing it. I don't think anybody would disagree with the need for more attention to this problem. Um, and, and we can ask lots of questions at every level. Uh, about what to do next um, uh, to to build a healthy society, to build uh, you know the outcomes we want to see. Dr. Andrew Hunt from University Hospitals in Cleveland, a psychiatrist there. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Remember, you can find and subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Search University Hospitals or The Science of Health, depending on where you subscribe. And for more health news, advice from medical experts, and The Science of Health podcast, just go to uhhospitals.org slash blog.